there was a motto that was chosen long ago for this church. It is a motto that you'll see on our website, that you would see on our church sign, at least, at least before some enterprising person decided to uh, deface that sign. You would see it even on our straight gate post, on the bulletin that we put out every single Sunday morning. I think you know what that motto is, unashamed of the gospel of Christ. And of course, the allusion is clearly to Romans 1, verse 16, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. If you know it from here, why don't you say it with me? For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek now, why is that? Because that verse goes on to say, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, I just want to come at this from a very simple premise tonight. If we are going to be unashamed of the gospel of Christ, we need to know what the gospel is. Amen? Before we can truly know whether we are unashamed of the gospel and live in such a way to be unashamed of the gospel, we must know what it is we are not ashamed of. We must know the gospel. Now, if I were to ask you this evening, what is the gospel? What would you say? In fact, if I were to ask you to write down on your notepaper right now, before the sermon, what is the gospel? What would you write down? In fact, I'm going to pause for just a minute and allow you to do just that. What is the gospel? If you don't have a note page in front of you, I just want you to think about it as if I were going to call on you. I won't, don't worry. What is the gospel? And I start here tonight while you're still writing because I think that there is evangelism and sharing the gospel is a little bit like prayer. I don't know many people who, if you were to ask them, do you pray enough, would say, I do. Do you pray fervently enough? I do. And in the same way, when it comes to sharing our faith, to sharing the gospel, I don't know many people that would say, if, you, if asked directly, how are you doing at sharing the gospel? They'd say, praise God, by his grace, I'm doing great. I'm doing exactly what I need to do. I'm just as bold in presenting the gospel as God wants me to be. I'm just as, as spirit-led and sensitive to the spirit when I share the gospel as I need to be. It would be, I think... A, a foreign thing, at least to most of us, to say, yes, I am carrying out the great commission of Jesus Christ exactly as the Spirit wants me to. And as I mentioned this morning, I want to, over these next several weeks, give us a tutorial from Scripture on what it is to present the gospel. To be an evangelist, not, of course, in the way that one travels around the country preaching, but what it is to live out and to share your faith to those who need it. And as I've said, as I said this morning, we'll do that both in sermons 
in which I will expound various Bible passages and hope to give us a clearer picture of what the gospel is and how we present it to the lost. But also in future weeks, we're going to be meeting in small groups and we're going to be looking at certain passages and, and looking for examples in our Bible. How did Jesus share the gospel? How did Paul share the gospel? How did Philip share the gospel? How did other people share the gospel to people in different kind of situations? And how can we learn from them how we might share the gospel in the various situations to which God brings us? And I say all that again to come back to the very central question that I want to pose and I want ultimately to answer tonight, what is the gospel? And as we go forward tonight, I encourage you to look back to what you wrote uh, down before we launched in and compare how your perception of the gospel lines up with what Paul says the gospel is. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because we want to be grounded in the Word tonight. 1 Corinthians 15 picks up right from where we left off many months ago in 1 Corinthians 14. Let all things be done decently in order in relationship to spiritual gifts. And Paul is going to make a transition to another subject that is dear, near and dear to his heart, the resurrection of the body. He says, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. He's going to tell us what the gospel is. I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. So this is the gospel that Paul says in Romans 1 is leads to the salvation of the lost to everyone who believes. And he says to these Corinthians, I preached it to you. You have received it and you stand in it. It is continuing to be an essential part of your walk, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. We'll get back to that in a little bit. Notice verse three. For I delivered unto you first of all that which also I received. And now he is going to tell us the essence of, of the gospel. The title of the message tonight is simply, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? If we are going to be people who are unashamed of the gospel, we must know and believe and have our hearts ringing with truly what the gospel is. Now I want you to notice something about these elements that come after it, exactly where we stopped. Notice what is not there. We see nothing in these few verses about the Holy Spirit, at least expressly. We see nothing about the eternal state of the Christian in heaven. We see nothing expressly about the eternal state of the lost in hell. We see nothing about the church, you might say more broadly, about, God's, about, about some more details of God's eternal purposes like we see in Ephesians chapter 1. The simple point is this. This is a very concise statement of the gospel. And yet it is the basics. It is the foundation of what the gospel truly is. Let me if I could put it to you this way, if someone were to come to one of you and say, I'm new to America and I don't understand this game that I see people playing here called golf, 
can you tell me what golf is? Well, if any of you have played golf, you would know it's an exceptionally complex sport. It is an exceptionally difficult game to truly understand, to know all the rules. When is it out of bounds? What happens if it's out of bounds? What do I do here? But what would just be the essence if you were going to say, what is the foundation of golf? You would say, you take this little white ball, you take these metal sticks, and you try to hit the ball to get into that little hole in the ground in as few strokes as possible, as few number of times swinging. That would be the essential of what golf is. You wouldn't have to get into every single other detail about how, about how golf is played. There would be just the essential basics. And you could apply that to virtually any kind of learning. What is truly the core? And what I'm suggesting to you here is in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is not trying to give us every aspect of what the gospel encompasses. That is the place of all the rest of his epistles and the broad teaching of scripture beyond it. But he is distilling them down into the very specific and concise elements that he preached and that he expected were the foundation of the Corinthians' salvation. He says, this is what I preach to you. This is what you have received. This is what you are standing in. And this is what you will be saved. Or indeed, you are saved unless you have believed in vain. So start again from this idea that 1 Corinthians 15 is nailing down for us the very basics, the very heart, the very fundamental essence of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Is. And I want us to look at three elements of these few verses from verse number 3 through verse number 11. Three elements of the basics of what the gospel is that come, I think, through each one of these passages. The first one is what I'm going to call a divine plan. A divine plan. Will you look with me again in verse 3? For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Now put a pin there. We'll come back to that. He, he is delivering to them what Paul first received himself. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Just think about that one small phrase. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now keep on going and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he, Jesus, was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. Notice the simplicity there. What is the gospel? Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He was, rose again. And he was seen by a whole bunch of people. Do you know Paul's saying effectively that is really the heart of the gospel? Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again according to the scriptures. And he was seen by a bunch of people. Now does that strike you as being too simple? There's, there's got to be more detail there. Well, I want us to just look at a couple key aspects of this, what I'm calling a divine plan. Notice who the actor is, the worker. Who is the one who is the subject of the verbs? 
who died, who, rose, who was buried, who rose again, and who was seen? Jesus. This is why scripture repeatedly calls Paul, and in fact himself repeatedly calls it the gospel of Christ. That's what he refers it to as, the gospel of Christ. Or as he says in 2 Corinthians 4, the glorious gospel of Christ. You could also translate that, the gospel of the glory of Christ. What is the gospel about? The gospel's about Christ because it's all about what he did. And we need to pause here because one of the central deceptions of the evil one is that the gospel involves something you do, not something Christ has done entirely. Do you remember the book of Galatians? It starts out with Paul right off the bat in Galatians chapter one saying, have you already turned to a different gospel than the one I preached? And what is the heart of this different gospel that the Galatians had embraced? The gospel of legalism. The gospel of law-keeping. The gospel of circumcision for the purpose of salvation. And Paul is just shaking his hands in the air and saying, Wait, that's not the gospel I preached to you. The gospel I preached to you was of Christ alone of Christ crucified. God forbid, he says in Galatians 6, that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom I am crucified unto the world and the world is crucified unto me. What is he saying? It is all in Christ. As Colossians 2 says, we are complete in him. In him alone. There's nothing that I can add to the equation. It is not Jesus Christ plus anything else. It is Jesus Christ alone. And so we need to recognize right here in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul is saying, what is the gospel? It is Christ. He is the central actor. He is the central worker in the gospel. Especially in a broad uh, a sense of those who would identify as Christian across our world today, this fundamental separator, are you saved by Christ alone and the work that he did? Or are you saved in part by the work that you did? If your answer to that is the latter, that I am saved in part by the work that I did, you do not know the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ is what he did and what he alone accomplished for our eternal salvation. It is all his work and none of ours. So the person of Christ is the part of this divine plan. But then notice what also it said here at the very beginning, how that Christ died for our sins. What is the purpose of the gospel? The person of the gospel is Christ. The purpose of the gospel is in that phrase, for our sins. The gospel addresses the fundamental need of humanity that you and I cannot be just before God on our own work. We just read not long ago in Job chapter 9 when Job is being accused and harassed and hounded by these friends of his who are shaking their finger at him and saying, it's your fault this happened to you. You have some hidden sin. And Job is saying, I know everything that you're saying. But then he says in one of the most wonderful questions in all of scripture, he says, but how shall man be just with God? You are wagging your finger at me, but how shall man be just with God? Do you know that is the central question that is rung out across all of human history? 
How are we as human beings going to be made righteous before a holy God when we are unrighteous and we know it to the core of our being? We know that we are selfish. We know that we have hurt people. We know that we haven't loved God as we should. We know that we haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves. We know that in ways big and small, we have violated what fundamentally we know to be the moral law of God. And this becomes the great central need of mankind. What are you going to do about your sins? What are you going to do before a holy God when he calls you to account one day? And this is why 1 John 2, 2 says, He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. Oh, friends, there are those who would like to wipe away the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. It is penal because Christ took a penalty. It is a penalty that he took. It is substitutionary because it is on our behalf. He took our penalty. And it is atonement because it is atoning for those sins before a just and a holy God. Is that song, that newer song, but a wonderful hymn. His robes for mine, O oh, wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. That is what the gospel is. He died for our sins. Because the purpose of the gospel, this heartbeat of the gospel as it relates to mankind, is that we must have our sins taken care of if we are to be made right before God. 2 Corinthians 5, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What is the central question the gospel answers? What do we do about man's sin? So notice, the person of, of the gospel is Christ. The purpose, in, in a man-focused sense, of course, the purpose of the gospel ultimately is the glory of God, as we'll look at more next week. But toward mankind, the central question the gospel answers is what are we going to do about man's sin? But then notice this very interesting idea that Paul makes sure to add. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, why did Paul feel the need to add that by the Holy Spirit? Notice again, similarly, the next verse, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, and there's his phrase again, according to the scriptures. Why is Paul so keen on making sure we know that the gospel is about being according to the scriptures? It's the prophecy of Christ. Because it tells us this. This was not some random event that Jesus died. This was not something that God made a mistake and said, oops, i got to try to correct it. This was part of God's eternal plan. We read even in the book of Revelation of a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This was God's plan. It is according to the scriptures. Even Jesus' death on the cross itself was carrying out God's plan. As the apostles said to the early rulers of the church, you did it out of ignorance, but it was all according to his plan. It was all according to what he knew and intended to be done beforehand. Now, if I were to ask you this question, if I, you were to say, someone were to come up to you up from the street and say, how was Jesus' death for our sins according to the scriptures, what scripture would you point them to? Our Old Testament scripture, what would you point them to? The central, in my view, the central teaching of Christ dying for our sins. Isaiah 53. Will you write that down? Write that down, and I hope you have those verses memorized. 
Because if someone comes up to you and says, what does the Bible, what does the Old Testament say about the death of Jesus Christ? Say, well, let me show you Isaiah chapter 53. Will you turn over there for just a moment? I want us to see these and allow them, I, I suspect so many of us have heard them and memorized them, but maybe we'll have a fresh look at them tonight. Notice in this testimony about the Messiah, verse 3 says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. There's that substitutionary nature. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God. There's that, again, that penal substitutionary aspect of Christ's death. Smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one from to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why was the death of Jesus for our sins according to the scripture? Because God told us what the Messiah would do when he came. He would die for our sins. Now verse 4 says he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And let me ask you, if someone were to inquire of you, what passage from the Old Testament in particular prophesies of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What would you say? Do you remember in Acts chapter 2 when Peter gets up to give the first sermon after Pentecost? Do you remember he quotes an Old Testament passage proving that Jesus Christ would be raised from the dead? What passage was that? Does anyone know? He, he quoted Joel for the outpouring of the Spirit. And that was the prophecy that the Spirit would be outpoured. Turn over to Psalm 16, will you? Psalm 16, and again, this is another one. If you want to be trained on how to lead a soul to Jesus Christ, if you want to be trained on how to talk to someone who has a Jewish background about how the Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, we need to know these verses. We need to have them as like those old sword drills ready to share. Notice Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. And he does not mean by hell here the place of eternal judgment. He means Hades, the place of the dead. You will not leave my soul in the place of the dead. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks to the, in that first sermon. He says, you know David is dead and buried. You know he suffered corruption. He can't be talking about himself when he says his Holy One. Who is the one who has not seen corruption? Who would not be resting in the place of the dead? He was talking about Jesus Christ. And of course, there are other places that we can look in our Old Testament to see that the resurrection of Christ was according to the scriptures. But Psalm 16 is a really good place to start. Now you see, what am I getting at? The gospel is a divine plan. 
rooted in the person of Christ with the goal, with the the question that is answering of addressing human sin and as it was prophesied before, as it was God's eternal plan for the salvation of mankind. As my father used to love to say, the great drama of redemption is God gathering out of the world a special people for himself. So it's a divine plan. But I want us to see secondly and very, very importantly about the gospel is that it is a historical fact. It is a divine plan. It is a historical fact. Let's keep on going, will you? He was buried, verse 4 says. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen of Cephas. Who was Cephas? Peter. Then of the twelve, the other disciples. After that, he was seen of above or more than 500 brethren at once. 500 people at once saw him, more than that, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James. This is not James the disciple. This is James the brother, the half-brother of Jesus, who became one one of the great leaders of the early Jerusalem church. Then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. Now let me ask you this question. Before you came here this evening, and even in what you wrote down on your sheet, would you have said the gospel, the essence, the real heart of the gospel, is that Jesus was seen by a bunch of people after he was raised from the dead? Why is that an essential part of the gospel? That he was seen Well, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it, when you go down a couple verses. Verse 13, this is what Paul is driving at when he's introducing this gospel that he preached to them. If there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. It's empty, it's worthless. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ. Whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Friends, mark that there. What is the gospel answering? What to do with your sin? What is necessary for God's work of your sin? That Jesus raised from the dead. If he didn't raise from the dead, he's not the Messiah. If, he didn't, if he's not the Messiah, that means he did not give a penal substitutionary atonement for your sins and you are still in them, doomed for eternal judgment before God. It is necessary to the gospel that Jesus rose from the dead and therefore it is necessary to the gospel that the resurrection of the dead is a historical fact. It happened. That's why Paul is telling us here that the essential gospel that he preached to them is that Jesus was seen. Now, who was he seen by? He was seen of Cephas, of Peter. And in fact, we see this elsewhere in the gospel that Jesus, after he rose from the dead, made a special visit to Peter. Why? I don't doubt. It's because in light of the, of the, of the, of the turning against Jesus that Peter made, Jesus made a special visit to encourage him and say, Peter, I've got a calling for you. 
he made a special visit to Peter. Not only that, he made a special visit to the twelve. When did he do that? We remember when they were in that upper room congregating on the first day of the week and suddenly Jesus appeared even though the doors were closed. We see that in scripture. What about he was seen of more than 500 brethren at once? We don't know. We, that's not recorded for us in scripture. Paul testifies to it here, and he says the greater part of these are still alive. You could go talk to them. You could go ask them if they saw the resurrected Christ. You want to have a good case in court? How about calling 300 or how many, the greater part of them, that's more than half, at least 251. 251 people call into court and say, did you see Jesus alive after his, after his purported resurrection? They'd say, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd swear under oath to that. What's he trying to say? There is conclusive historical proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice that. He says, after that, he was seen of James. Again, we don't have a, 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 a historical record of this in our Gospels or in our epistles, but we see it here. Then of all the apostles, you remember Acts chapter 1 when Jesus brings his apostles out and is seen by them one final time before he ascends up into heaven, giving them the, the lesson of the power that would be coming on them soon. And no notice verse 8, and last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. When did Paul see Jesus? On the road to Damascus, Paul saw the glory of Jesus Christ, and it was as if he was one born before the time, out of due time. Now notice here, what is the key focus? Jesus, his resurrection is a central aspect in a non-negotiable non-negotiable aspect of the gospel. Do you know what that tells us, friends? Christianity is not a mere set of ideas, a mere set of ideas. It's not a mere set of theologies. It's not something we carefully construct as a part of, here's this nice packaged, bundled up truth that I can give to you. It is a historical reality. And that means our gospel presentation, that means the way we think about the gospel and the way we present the gospel cannot be unmoored from the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you go around the early church, you see them saying over and over again, what are we preaching? That Jesus rose again from the dead and he's alive. You follow Paul to Athens and what does he say? You're worshiping these crazy gods that are just nonsense. The real God sent his son and he raised him from the dead and he's coming back one day to be judge and you better get right with him. That was Paul's message to the Athenians. In Acts chapter 4, do you remember when the Holy Spirit has just filled this, this, this congregation of Christians? Scripture tells us, and with great grace, those apostles gave witness to the resurrection of Christ. What were they saying? We saw him. He's alive. And they were willing to die for it. This was the key witness of the early church. It was the key historical reality, the fact that they were standing on above the other facts, even of the important facts that we have seen here of the divine plan. It was those that supported, that proved, that were the groundwork, the basis for what their connection was that Christ was died and was risen again according to the scriptures. And why do I say this? I say this because it's very easy when I study a plan of salvation to give 
that I'm presenting a nicely packaged system of theology. I'm giving a nicely bundled set of biblical truths about what Jesus did and who he was. But I may miss ultimately the fundamental aspect that he is alive today. That it's a historical reality. That he's coming back and you better get right with him. Or you're going to be lost eternally. See, I remember I was, had the chance to give the gospel to someone, at least in a, in a, in a, in a, very, uh, a very quick sense, to someone at my work. And I remember saying to this person who's a Roman Catholic and goes to church, I don't believe there's any preaching of the gospel there. And I, was, I just went here. I said, you know, what my faith fundamentally is based on is that Jesus actually physically, bodily rose from the dead. And that's why I believe what I believe, because I'm convinced that he did. You know how powerful thing it is to testify to people that Jesus is alive? He's alive. Look at the proof of his resurrection. Look at why these apostles, after they had seen Jesus, were willing to die for him. People die for what they believe is true. No one dies for what they know is false. No one dies for what they in knew, knowingly made up and constructed. People die, people will die for what they saw and what ultimately they were willing to stake their lives on. And I just want to encourage us as we are out in this city this summer, as we are surrounded by our neighbors and by our coworkers and by our fellow students and friends, never forget the historical fundamental reality of the gospel that he was seen. Now, there are wonderful resources that we, have, that we are blessed with as a broader body of Christ across the world today. There are wonderful books like The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. I think of Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. I think of even an earlier book, Who Moved the Stone? You can see wonderful apologetic resources for why it is a reasonable faith, why it is we can have confidence in the assurance that Jesus did physically, bodily rise from the dead. And I encourage you to read those, to have your own faith strengthened in exactly what Paul is saying here. He was seen. He is truly alive. It is the historical fact that is the assurance that Jesus is at the center of this divine plan that he did die for our sins according to the scripture and that he is the savior of all who will believe. So again, notice these two things coming in perfect harmony and connection with one another. A divine plan rooted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. A historical fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ attested to by many witnesses and with ample proof and facts to support our belief come together to prove that Jesus Christ is who we believe he is and that our faith is indeed not in vain. But there's one more thing that Paul wants to make sure that we understand in this short example, this short testimony of what the gospel is. And it's what I'm going to call thirdly, a personal reception. A personal reception. Notice again from the very start, will you, in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, 
if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. And now look down at verse 11, will, will you? He says, therefore, whether it were I or they, me or the other apostles, so we preach and so ye believed. I want to pull out three verbs that are essential to the gospel. Three verbs that are essential to the personal reception of the gospel. The first one is received. You, he says, received the gospel that I preached. What does the word receive connote? What is the idea of the word receive? The idea of the word receive is to accept something as it was presented. Right? If I were to throw you a football and you were to receive the football, you would catch the same football that I, throw, that I threw and bring it into your possession. It would then be in your possession. If I were to give you something and you were not to receive it, but you were to modify it or you were to change it, you would no longer have received what I gave you. You would instead have altered it. You would have received something different than I gave you to be in your possession. The idea, I think, here of receiving the gospel is receiving how it was presented originally. To receive the gospel is not to receive the truths of the divine plan and the historical fact and say, let's tweak it around the edges here or there. It's a little more palatable to modern man if we cut out this aspect of the exclusionary atonement of Jesus Christ for our sins. Let's tone down this language about only it only being in Christ and through no effort of our own to appeal to man's pride. That's not the gospel. Again, Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, have you so e easily departed from the gospel? Have you so quickly departed from the gospel that I preach to you to a different one, to another one? Or in the words of Jude, I love this, beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful or necessary for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. When? 2,000 years ago. And as it was delivered to us back then is how we are called to receive it today. The non-negotiable of the gospel is that we receive it exactly as it was delivered to the saints and preserved for us in God's inspired word. Here's the second verb that is necessary to the personal reception of the gospel. Believed. Received. Believed. Notice what he says again. So we preached and so ye believed. Now it is fitting, I think, and timely that we are going through our study of Hebrews chapter 11. Because again, Hebrews chapter 11 is about the faith that saves. Is it about the faith that sanctifies? Yes. But it is about the faith that saves because he has just connected it in Hebrews chapter 10 to the just living by faith. He is explaining to them this essential nature of true saving faith. And he goes on to say that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And we glean from that that the faith that saves is not a mere intellectual belief. It is not an assent to a certain set of historical or of, of theological truths. 
There are many that you would say today, do you believe that to be true? And they would say yes, and they have never met Jesus Christ for salvation. There are those that you would ask them, do you believe that Jesus rose again from the dead? And they would say, I do. And they have never met him. You can go into the Mormon faith. You can go into the Jehovah Witness cult. You can go into all of these other uh, religions that believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead bodily and historically, and yet they are not born again. It is not an intellectual belief. It is not a mere assent to a set of truths that saves. What then is saving faith? Well, again, we saw in Hebrews 11, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. What have we been coming back again and again to in Hebrews chapter 11? Faith is something that brings reality to your soul. Faith is that by which we see and embrace the promises of God to make them real, not simply to our minds, but to our hearts and to our beings. Faith is ultimately that complete reliance that brings the reality of the gospel home to our lives. This is why we need to understand that when we present the gospel, we truly present Jesus Christ for who he is in his entirety. We present him for who he is as the risen Lord, who he is as the Son of God who is coming back to judge all men. We present him for who he is so that people see him for who he is. We are not simply trying to produce a mere assent to a certain set of truths. We are seeking by the grace of God to see people by the Holy Spirit bow before the risen Lord and accept him for who he is. Do you remember what the work of the Holy Spirit Jesus said that he would accomplish? The Holy Spirit would convict men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And why does the Holy Spirit convict people of sin? Do you remember? Of sin because why? They believe not on me. What is, the, what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? It is to elevate Jesus Christ to bring the reality of his resurrection home to people's lives and to say, you don't believe on him as the sinless son of God and as your eternal savior. And it is when, man, when men and women fall down under the conviction of the Holy Spirit with the reality of Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit has brought to them that they truly understand what it is for the salvation of their soul. Friends, let us not water down what saving faith actually is. Let us embrace truly the gospel that it is to be believed, or received, I should say, and it is to be believed. And then notice what he says here in verse 2. The third thing that I'm going to say, the third verb, is I'm going to say it is held. He said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. The gospel is something in which is not something that happened to you in the past. It is something that you are rooted in today and each day in your Christian life, by which also ye are saved. You are saved in the present tense. If ye keep in memory what I preached unto you. Do you know what that word, that idea of, pre, of keep in memory the idea is of possession. It is something that you are holding fast. It is something that you 
are clinging to. And scripture teaches this repeatedly, not just here, but elsewhere. For example, in Hebrews 3, 14, for we are made partakers of Christ. We are, are made partakers of Christ in the present tense if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. You cannot truly expound the word of God without seeing this connection that the evidence of genuine faith is that it is a held faith, that it is one that continues, it is one that remains. And here again, he holds that same idea, you are saved if you keep in memory what I preached, you hold fast what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Three verbs of the personal reception of the gospel, received, believed, held. It is the evidence, it is the real underlying character of genuine saving faith. So what is the gospel? The gospel is a divine plan rooted in Jesus Christ for the salvation of the lost by the forgiveness of their sins that is assured to us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you want to know truly what the gospel is, this is where you start. And I want to ask tonight as we close, what does this mean for the way that you and I present the gospel? If the gospel is a divine plan assured by historical reality that requires personal reception for the salvation of the soul, how will that change the way that you and I witness? The first thing I just want to make by application, is that first, it must be yours. It must be yours. I want us to see what Paul says. He says, verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Paul said, I delivered something to you that I received first. And if you want to be a witness to the gospel of Christ, you must first receive the gospel. And I want to pause here for a moment. Because one day, when countless millions stand before the judgment seat of Christ, there will be, I am, I am sad to say, millions of people who attended Bible preaching churches like this one. They will, would have been able to give the gospel presentation themselves. If you would ask them, do you believe that Jesus rose again from the dead? They would have said, yes, I do. And they will find one day to their horror that they never truly received the gospel themselves. What an incredible, what an incredible thought that is. And what a sobering one it is. And that's why I bring to you tonight as soberly as I'm able to ask you this question, have you received the gospel? We open tonight by saying, ye must be born again. We must, ye must be born again. Oh, verily, verily, I say unto thee, ye must be born again. Friend, have you been born again? Have you received the gospel? Have you believed it with the reality of what faith brings to your soul? Have you held it? Is the gospel yours? Have you received it? And you say, how do I know whether I have received it? How do I know whether the gospel is mine? I recall what Paul says to us in Romans chapter 8. 
The Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are the child of God. And I don't say this to try to encourage a doubt that should not be there. I say this actually to encourage an assurance that God says can be there when the Spirit is bearing witness to your spirit. Ephesians 1 says, what is the earnest of our inheritance? What is the down payment that God gives us to assure us that there is an eternal destiny for us? It is not looking back to something we did in the past. It is the present assurance of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. That is the earnest. That is the down payment. That is the central source of assurance that God intended for us in our Christian life. My question for us is tonight simply is this. Is the gospel alive to you tonight? Does the gospel have the capacity to stir your heart? Do you hear the gospel presented as it was tonight? And does something stir in your heart to say, I love that message? Does something stir in your heart to say, God has done that work for me. Jesus has given his life for me. I am saved by what he did. Do you know what that is? That's the spirit giving witness to your spirit that you're the child of God. Is the gospel alive to you? Has the gospel ever been alive to you? Now, there may be someone here tonight who says, the gospel has not been alive to me for some time. I've read it, I've heard it preached, and it simply seems dull and dead. Friends, I would warn you, you are in spiritual peril. It may be simply that you are backslidden and you need to have a fresh revival, a fresh taste of the Spirit of God to bring you to that place. But I do tell you, there are many of you around this room tonight who say, that is what the gospel means to me. This gospel is alive to me. Oh, I wish it were more alive. I wish I were more in tune with it. I wish I were more and more stirring my heart day after day. But I know, Pastor Peter, I know it's alive to me. Praise God. Praise God. His spirit gives witness to our spirit that we are the children of God. Have you received the gospel? Have you believed the gospel? Have you held the gospel? Is the Spirit bearing witness with your spirit? May it be for all of us. Here's the second thing. Not only must the gospel be yours, but also we need to see that ultimately the gospel is simple. The gospel is simple. The simple gospel that Paul proclaimed was this. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he rose again, and he was seen. You know, friends, you can proclaim that. You don't need to have a PhD in theology to tell people that Jesus is alive and that you know him. You don't need advanced Bible teaching to tell people that Jesus died for their sins. You don't need an advanced degree in, in, uh, in apologetics to be able to see that there's reasonable proof why you believe Jesus rose again from the dead. I just want to encourage you, don't be cowed from being a gospel witness by wondering what people are going to say. You have a simple message. And you know what? Someone might say when you say Jesus is alive and I know him, they might say, they might ask a question you don't, aren't equipped to answer, but that's okay. Because that witness that you gave very simply to the resurrection of Jesus Christ might resonate in their heart for some point down the road when, when, when you won't even see it. Let's just make sure that we're going and telling people that Jesus is alive, that he rose again from the dead, that he was seen, and that one day he's coming back as the judge of all men. And you, like the early church, 
will be testifying to the reality of the work of Christ. But here's the last thing. Not only it must be yours, not only is it simple for us to proclaim, but also it is something for us to be both bold and discerning. See, in my experience, and maybe in yours, God brings different aspects of the gospel to different people's hearts and minds in ways that they may have a a different need for. There will be some people you will come across that they're convinced by the divine plan and by the historical fact, but they've never personally received Jesus Christ. Maybe they've grown up thinking that there was something that they needed to add. There was some aspect of their ritual that they needed to follow. And you can give the gospel to them to say, you know, the gospel must be received. And here's the gospel, how the gospel is received by you. Here's what faith is and how to have it. There might be other people around the people in which I often find myself at work. They are people who are simply not convinced by the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And among them, I may choose to emphasize Jesus is alive. There is a reasonable basis. You need to be right with him. For others, in fact, they may just simply be mistaught. They may believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They may believe that they've personally received him, but they don't understand the divine plan of salvation. They don't understand that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. And maybe in talking to them, you'll see, all right, Lord, I need to zone in on this point. The simple aspect is this. The gospel is all of those things. It is a divine plan. It is assured by a historical fact, and it requires a personal reception. Let's go back to where you started tonight. Look back at your page. What did you write? What is the gospel? What is the gospel? I hope tonight that you'll have a chance to supplement what you wrote with what we have seen from God's word tonight. And I hope, perhaps most importantly, that your heart will be stirred tonight by this gospel that I trust is yours and be a little more prepared, and a little more equipped to share it this week. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that it is good news. It is good news to be received. It is good news to be believed. And it is good news to be held. Father, you know how you need to work in each of our lives. But I pray, Father, if there is even one person here tonight or within the sound of my voice that has never believed the gospel, they've never received it. Father, it's not enough to know intellectually what the plan is. It's not enough even to know intellectually that Jesus rose. It requires reception. Spirit of God, would you reveal to us tonight where we stand, where your spirit is at in our lives. And perhaps for you tonight, friend, your work ministry of the spirit has been assurance that the spirit is at work in your life, that he is giving witness that you are the child of God. Rejoice in that as well. for those of us who would say, I need the gospel to be more real to me. I need it to be more alive. I need that ministry of the Spirit in a greater way tonight. Why don't you cry out to him that you're dry, that you're thirsty, 
that you need a greater reality to be brought to bear so that you can be a witness of the resurrection of Christ. And maybe tonight God has put someone on your mind that you need to share the gospel with. Someone who needs to hear the truth. Whatever it is, why don't you let the Holy Spirit minister to you tonight? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation unto every one that believeth. Father, thank you for the gospel. I pray, Father, that your people would be grounded, would be standing in that gospel, and would be proclaiming it boldly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.